Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to read this morning from Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. This is the Old Testament text that will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage. Our sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 26. We'll turn there in just a moment, but before Acts 26, let's hear from Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, and there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, and exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves. And cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Amen. The prophet Ezekiel has this remarkable experience, this amazing vision, in which a scene that is clearly dead, not just like, you know, a little bit dead, not just mostly dead, like all the way dead. You guys get the culture reference? This is complete death. He walks about the valley and he sees dry bones. These aren't bones that recently died. These are bones that have been dead a long time. And God, through his prophet, says, this is the experience of Israel in exile. 
They have reached the very bottom of the pit. Ezekiel is preaching to the exiles, to those who have no access to the temple, no access to the sacrifices, no access to the priesthood. Everything that communicates to them God loves you is gone. Every sacrament, every scripture, everything that they had depended upon to cultivate their faith is gone. And they say, not wrongly, we are dead men walking. We are in exile. We are cut off from God. We are without hope. And Ezekiel comes to them. And he does not make light of their suffering. And he does not minimize the severity of their situation. Rather, he magnifies the grace of God by saying, yes, but he can raise the dead. This, my friends, is our hope. Not that he can keep the pain of this life short or small, but that no matter how great the pain, no matter how severe the consequences, no matter how intense the sin, the suffering, the sorrow, he can raise the dead. With that in mind, turn to Acts chapter 26. We're going to read the final verses of Acts chapter 26, verses 24 through 32. This is the very end of both this chapter and this rather lengthy story that Luke has been telling us about Paul's encounter in Caesarea. It's remarkable that Luke as an author would skip over entire years of Paul's earthly ministry. And then instead, focus entire chapters of the story on just this experience of the Jews and the Romans going to battle for the body of of Paul in Caesarea. And here at last, the fight comes to an end. The big legal debate that has begun in Jerusalem two years prior, at last, is coming to its completion. Acts 26. Here now, verses 24 through 32. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might also become, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. And amen. We are continually assessing and taking risk. 
We have to in order to get through life. We don't know everything we need to know. So we have to take educated guesses. We have to assess and take risks. For a toddler, this means walking away from mom. It's assessing and taking the risk. For some toddlers in this congregation, it means running as fast as possible away from mom or dad. For older children like me on the farm, it meant riding dirt bikes across a river. It doesn't work. But it seemed like a risk worth taking at the time. For some of us as farm kids, it meant climbing silos and jumping off hay mows. For all of you today, it meant getting in your car and going to this building and sitting in these pews hoping that I would have something worth listening to. You didn't think about that this morning, did you? Perhaps subconsciously, perhaps unwittingly, you assess the risk of coming to this place and having nothing to listen to in the hope that there would be something to listen to, that I would show up and have something important to say. What is so striking about our pattern of how we assess and take risk is that we base it upon past experience. And those who have heard any number of sermons from this pulpit know every sermon has one point, and it has to do with Jesus. Your risk is about to be rewarded. The text before us has one point. Jesus is alive. Friends, this is good news. This is not just good news. This is the best news. This is the best news every human ever born, every human doomed to die could ever hear. Jesus is alive. And as a result, he will get you to glory. Jesus is alive. And he will get you to glory. So friends, believe in him. Trust him. Follow him. Let's think about this a little bit this morning. Notice just there in verse 24 that Paul has concluded his defense. This is his third defense. He made his defense in Jerusalem before the centurion. He made his defense before Felix. It didn't get him anywhere. Two years imprisonment in Caesarea. This is his third defense now before Festus, together joined with Agrippa. You could argue it's his fourth defense if you take Festus and Agrippa as two different encounters. There is three or even four defenses that Paul has made for himself now. And upon completing this defense in verse 24, Festus responds with a loud and mocking derision. Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has driven you mad. In these two phrases, Festus is pointing to the emotional instability that he perceives in Paul, as well as the intellectual incapacity. By saying that Paul is beside himself, Festus is claiming that Paul cannot be emotionally depended upon. His feelings are out of whack. He is not himself. He is beside himself. His emotions belie his instability. But secondly, he says in verse 24 that he has been driven mad. That is, he is intellectually incapacitated. The abundance of knowledge has not produced an abundance of wisdom. But rather, this clearly learned, competent, multilingual scholar has overdone it. Did you guys ever meet that person in college who has clearly overdone it? 
Too many credits, too many classes, too much learning, and can no longer relate to the real world. This is what Festus is claiming. The Apostle Paul has invested so much in whatever it is he has learned that he is no longer connected to reality. This is the claim. Paul is crazy. He's no longer in touch with the real world. In fact, he's beside himself. He's no longer in touch with himself. He no longer knows what is real about himself, and he no longer knows what is real about the world. This claim is rooted in one assertion made by the Apostle Paul. It is found in verse 23. The Christ should suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. Festus is not ignorant or incompetent. When he hears the words that the Christ is the first to rise from the dead, he recognizes that Paul is making an extraordinary claim. That Jesus rose from the dead. And he says of Paul, you're crazy. That is not connected to reality. The dead don't rise. He says, secondly, Paul, you're beside yourself. If Jesus is the first, you're implying that you are among the second. Paul, you won't rise from the dead. My friends, all our hope rests on the claim that Christ has risen from the dead. All our hope rests in the claim that because Christ has risen from the dead, we too will rise with him one day. This is our hope. But it sounds crazy to the world. I mean, how many of you have met dead people who are alive? How many of you have read scholarly, peer-reviewed articles about dead people who are now alive? It's not been scientifically verified. It's not been studied in the academies. It's not been experienced by the mass population. I mean, it's fake news, right? It doesn't live up to any of our modern standards of truth. It's craziness. Friends, we need to be increasingly equipped and aware that the world that many of us adults grew up in, in which the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a matter of indifference, is passing away. We are increasingly living in Festus's world. We're believing that a dead, crucified criminal is king of heaven and earth, living and ruling and reigning in heaven, is a claim an insane person makes. This is increasingly your society. Do we know how to live the hope, the truth, the confidence that comes from knowing that Christ was crucified for my sins but raised for my eternal life? Well, the Apostle Paul does. And he answers Festus in verse 25 with this assertion. I am not mad, most noble Festus. Notice that Paul is not angered or disturbed by this accusation. My friends, let the world think we are crazy. It's okay. It's okay to be weird. It's okay to be crazy. As a matter of fact, most of us are in a Reformed Presbyterian church because we're okay with weird and we're okay with crazy. But let us be safe knowing that we are not crazy. We are not mad. Indeed, as he says to most noble Festus, I speak words of truth. And reason. The claim that Christ was raised from the dead is both true and reasonable. It's not a crazy claim. It's not un- out of touch with reality. To the contrary, it is true. 
It is a right reflection of the reality. And secondly, it is reasonable. That is, it fits with the reality of my own experience. Now, there's a wealth of sermons that could be preached from this one sentence. I won't do that. And not this morning. So let me point out just two areas for our consideration this morning. First, the resurrection is true. This is because it is a historical fact. Unlike the vast majority of human religions, our faith doesn't hinge on the myth-making power of our original story. It hinges on a historically verifiable fact. There are ways in which human beings can establish history really happened. And if you take all of those rules for good history and you apply it to Jesus' resurrection, you come to this decision. He's alive. The eyewitnesses bear truth. The written record bears truth. It is a historically verifiable fact. It is in touch with reality. But not only that, it's incredibly reasonable. Do you know why it's reasonable? Because it's the thing we desperately need. There was never a child of Adam and Eve who had not died or will not yet die. Does it not make sense that in a world haunted by death, that if we are to have salvation, we must have it through resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let us add to it the reasonability of God being the maker of all life. That if he has indeed made all life, he surely can remake all life. If he once made from dust all that is human, he can surely make from ashes to ashes and dust to dust a new human. Indeed, my friends, resurrection is both true and reasonable, as Paul here preaches. But Paul is not interested in an intellectual debate. Paul is a master apologist, but he's not here to apologize. Paul is here to win the heart of one man. He knows this legal briefing is not needed. It's unnecessary. He knows the conversation with Festus is entirely beside the point. Paul is yearning for the evangelistic opportunity that Agrippa has given him. And so in verse 26, Paul turns to Agrippa and says, It is before the king that he speaks freely. That is that for him, for the Apostle Paul, this is not simply a legal hearing, a legal briefing. No, he is speaking freely. He is speaking from the heart. Paul is yearning for Agrippa to come and embrace these truths. He is yearning for this one to know. In fact, he asserts in verse 26, I believe that Agrippa does know these things. This is a remarkable claim. How can he say that he knows Agrippa knows? He gives two reasons. First, it is everywhere evident. I am convinced that none of these things have escaped his attention. As a monarch of that land, as a king ruling over his subjects, He has heard of how one such subject was crucified, but reported alive. How there were not just one or three women who found him that morning. There was indeed all the twelve, not twelve, I I practiced that, like don't say twelve, it's eleven. Eleven disciples 
who saw him alive. But what is more, there were the 72 who saw him alive. And further, there were the 500 who saw him alive. This was not done in a corner, concludes the Apostle Paul. This was a public resurrection from the dead. It was not a secret spiriting away of the body out of Jerusalem. No, the living, breathing, eating, drinking body of Jesus Christ, which they saw the blood drain from his chest as he hung on the cross, walked their streets and ate and drank with them for 40 days. It was not an apparition. There was a prolonged appearance in which he talked, preached, served communion to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He was there. He could be touched by Thomas. He was alive. The historical evidence points that this is true. It is reasonable to come to this conclusion. Jesus is alive. But then he also points out in verse 27 that this is in fact the insistence of all the scriptures. Not only have that first generation borne witness to the reality, to the reasonableness, to the truthfulness of his resurrection, but indeed all the prophets who have come before have looked to this and longed for this. In verse 27, the Apostle Paul says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe Job, who said, after my body has wasted away, In my flesh, I shall see God. He believed in the resurrection from the dead. Do you believe Abraham who ascended Mount Moriah with Isaac in tow with the biggest, ugliest knife he could find because he meant to split the chest of his son open with one blow? And why did Abraham do that? According to the author of the book of Hebrews, because he believed that Jesus could raise him from the dead. Do you believe the prophet David who sings in Psalm 16, at your right hand is pleasure forevermore? Do you believe with the prophet in Psalm 118, I shall not die, but live and tell the Lord's power to save? Do you believe with the prophet Ezekiel that a valley full of dry and rotting bones can live? Do you believe that he raises the dead because all the prophets do? And indeed from the first prophet to the last in the words of Jesus from Abel to Zechariah, they have all preached one thing. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus is alive and he is the risen king. It is reasonable. It is true. All of history leading up to this moment points to it. All the eyewitnesses who were there assent to it. And further, my friends, it is true and it is reasonable because it has utterly redefined human civilization. We have remade the world, turning it upside down. With this one truth. Jesus is alive. As has been shown time and time again through the book of Acts. The kingdom of the Jews. It's extinct. The Roman Empire. It's extinct. All the great ancient civilizations with which Paul contended. They are gone. 
But the kingdom that is based on this truth, Jesus is alive. It is here. You sit among them. You sit with them. It is then in verse 28, when Paul has argued forcefully and apologetically to Festus and Agrippa both, when he has asserted, it is not crazy, it is true and it is reasonable, that he hears from Agrippa the most tragic words in Scripture. You almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Do you know how many Christians weep for those words? Do you not weep for those words, beloved? You almost persuaded me. As has been famously said throughout American culture, almost doesn't count. It won't count. He's almost persuaded. There are two, at least, possible interpretations of this sentence. First, very charitably, we could conclude that Agrippa is being humble and vulnerable. And he is speaking truthfully and saying to the Apostle Paul, You have done well, my friend. You have made a good argument, and I am almost there. Almost there. Secondly, Agrippa could be, like Festus, cynical and mocking. Oh, Paul, you almost persuaded me. Almost in this context, meaning not even close. Perhaps he is ironic and sarcastic, mocking the Apostle Paul. The Greek grammar does not tell us. The immediate context is not entirely clear. But from this much we can deduce that whether Agrippa means it as an honest expression of his proximity to faith in Jesus Christ or whether Agrippa means it as a mocking ridicule of Paul's faith in the resurrection, both rest on this foundation. Agrippa admits he is unwilling to believe in Jesus Christ. It is not a problem of his intellect. He understands the reasonableness of the resurrection. As a man prone to death, he longs for eternal life. It's reasonable. I want the resurrection. And what is more, a man who has read the prophets, he acknowledges it was promised and prophesied of old. As a man who has seen that first generation firsthand, he acknowledges the eyewitnesses bear truth to this. And as one who watched Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria be turned all upside down by these apostles, he admits there is truth and reason in this. But he is unwilling to trust. You almost persuaded me. My friends, there's nothing so tragic as to hear continually the truth of Jesus Christ raised from the dead, but never to put your faith in him. Beloved, let not the mind perceive and the heart ignore. Let us love what we hear, believe what we hear, and Paul gives us a good reason to do so in verse 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today. It is Paul's yearning, his longing, that Agrippa and his audience, indeed all of them together, might become almost and altogether such as I am. 
By almost, Paul is making a clever play on Agrippa's words. Agrippa has said, you almost persuaded me. And Paul says, I wish you were almost like me. The one difference that he wishes to be preserved is chains. At the end of verse 29, Paul says, the only thing I want you to be almost like me in is my chains. You don't need to enter my office of apostle. You don't need to bear these shackles and these burdens. I don't long for you to suffer and to be miserable, to be imprisoned and to be at the mercy of others. I don't long for this for you. But instead, I altogether wish you were exactly as I am. By altogether, Paul here means a complete devotion to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wish that you would give your whole life to this truth. I wish you would surrender entirely to this reality. Because the problem with Agrippa and why he is unwilling is because he perceives that it is altogether too costly. And he is not wrong. To believe that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead means that you must give up the life you have here. Jesus said, if you would follow me, you must take up your cross daily. Die to yourself. You must live to God. My friends, as Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bid him die. We are called by Christ to give up this life. But as was said by the slain missionary, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. None of you can keep this life. None of you can live forever here in this sin and in this sorrow. But there is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Is it worth the trade? Would you die to yourself and to your sin? Would you give up your ambitions and say, It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me? And say, I will not be myself, I will be Christ. Would you be persuaded by this? In a word, Paul adds this third argument for the resurrection. Not only is it true, it it fits with reality in the historical record. Not only is it reasonable, it's what we need, it fits our theology. But thirdly, it is worthy. The resurrected Jesus is worth believing in. It is such a glorious, beautiful truth that it ought to captivate and compel the human heart to say all the sufferings of this life if heaped up together in a scale would be entirely out of balance with the glory that is to come. Indeed, that's what Paul preached in Romans chapter 8. That eternal life with Jesus Christ, indeed that first moment when your eye blinks open, Not in the start of the day, but in the dawn of the new life and the new heavens and the new earth. When your eyes blink open for the first time and you see Jesus face to face as Adam did God in the garden that day. Not one tear, not one tragedy, not one death will seem unworthy. All life's agonies and pains evaporate. In the face of Jesus Christ. He is worthy. He is the king in glory. And he is worth the chains. And the pains of this life. Paul has preached. 
He has laid bare his heart. He speaks freely before them, bidding them, come, come with me out of this Roman Empire, out of this Idumean kingdom, out of this world and in the world that is to come. Let us taste the resurrection together. And when he has said these things in verse 30, the king stands up. The governor and Bernice and those who sat with him, that is, the jury, the judges, those who were entrusted to this hearing, who were gathered together to figure out what it was they were to write to Caesar to explain the Apostle Paul and his problems, and why it was the Jewish nation wanted him dead, and why it was the Romans were powerless to decide what to do with him. They step aside to begin to discuss what is his answer, what is his argument, How is it that the fact that Jesus Christ is alive so animates him, so energizes him, that all the Jewish nation want him dead? And all the Romans go, what's the big deal? He was crucified and he's alive. What does it matter? The Jewish people say, kill him for believing in the resurrection. The Romans say, eh, who cares? Whatever. What then do we do with Jesus? They talked among themselves and they come to this verdict. This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. For the fourth time, Luke has recorded for us the innocence of Paul. That on two or three or indeed four witnesses, we should acknowledge the Apostle Paul is innocent in all that he is suffering, in all that he is enduring. The centurion in Jerusalem who arrested him concluded that he was innocent. Felix, who tried him there in Caesarea, concluded that he was innocent. Festus, in his own hearing, had concluded he was innocent. Here now Agrippa comes for the fourth and final time and says, this man is innocent. Then why is he suffering these things? In a word, why do... Bad things happen to good people. Why, why must Paul be in chains and under threat of death if he is such an innocent one? Indeed, verse 20, 32, Agrippa comes down with this verdict. Having handed down, sorry, sentence. Having handed down the verdict, he's innocent. He now passes this sentence to Festus. This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He might have gone free. Agrippa at last concludes what none of his predecessors could. He should just go free. He is not a Roman tied up in all the legal straits. He is not a Jew moved by murderous intent to the Apostle Paul. As this relatively neutral figure in the middle, Agrippa looks upon the Apostle Paul and says, Why are you all so powerless to set him free? And Agrippa concludes, I don't understand. Why would he appeal to Caesar? He could have gone free. Why is Paul not free? Why is he living under a sentence of death? He's clearly innocent. Why is he living in chains and suffering and imprisonment? He's clearly innocent. Why have these things befallen him? Do you guys remember Acts 23, verse 11? It has been the ending point of every sermon for the last six weeks. 
And Jesus visited Paul in prison and said, Do not be afraid. You will go to Rome. Why can the Romans not set him free? Because Jesus is sending him to Rome. Why can the Jews not kill him? Because Jesus is sending him to Rome. Why is Agrippa too little, too late? Because Jesus is sending him to Rome. Because Jesus is alive. He is alive and he is running the world. The Romans are not. He is alive and he is running the world. The Jews are not. He is alive and he is running this world. Our country is not. Our diseases and pandemics are not. He is king. He is alive. And he is running the world. Dear friends, I don't know what chains, what sufferings, what sorrows, what death, what disease we face. Not today, not tomorrow, not in the weeks to come. This much I know. He is alive and he will get you to glory. As surely as no one could stop the Apostle Paul from getting to Rome because Jesus promised far more surely. My friends, no one can stop you from getting to glory when Jesus has promised. Beloved, your Jesus is alive and nothing, not even death, can separate you from him. Do not be afraid. Trust these promises. It is true and it is reasonable and it is worthy that we should live our lives like those who know the resurrection from the dead. We who trust our Jesus have every reason, every truth, every glorious, beautiful reason and truth To live like death doesn't win. Like it cannot separate us from Christ. Beloved, Jesus is alive. He is alive. And he will get you to glory. So trust him. Please trust him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that our Jesus came to earth to bear the curse and consequence of our sin. We give you thanks that our Jesus was crucified, cut off from the land of the living, and stricken for the transgressions of his people. We give you thanks that he was laid in our grave and was under the power of death for a time. And yet he has broken death forever. We give you thanks that on the third day he was risen up, raised up. And that we with him look forward to being raised up. We give you thanks that the resurrection is true. That it is reasonable. That it is glorious and beautiful. And we pray, Father, that you would take us captive to its truth. And give us hope in its beauty. We pray, O God, that you would set before us this joy to walk in, to live in, to love in, and indeed to die in. That Jesus 
is alive, and he will raise us from the dead. O Father, imprint these things upon our hearts and our minds and set us free from all fear that we would trust him and be at peace. For this we pray in his name. Amen.